as he walks along. He, he hears what Evangelist tells him. <clears throat> and he says, go to the, the wicked gate. And so he sets his heart going there. And um, finally, when he comes to a hill called Calvary, the burden that was on his back falls away, rolls into the tomb, is never seen again. He's given a scroll in his hand. And as he walks along the way, he meets various people. Some are trying to persuade him away, like pliable and, and obstinate. He has conversations with ignorance and worldly wise men. He encounters some difficulties, like the worldliness at Vanity Fair. Uh, he goes through the valley of the shadow of death. He fights Apollyon. And through lack of faith, he finds himself in Doubting Castle until finally he arrives at the celestial city safe and sound. Right? How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Many of you. Good. I would encourage you to do that. It's a great story that strengthened many down through the ages. But it's not the only allegory that John Bunyan has written. He also wrote another allegory, maybe a little lesser known, um, called The Holy War. How many of you heard of The Holy War? Only a few of you. The Holy War is a, a book about a city. And the city is called Mansoul. And uh, the original beauty and splendor of this city was unmatched while it, is, uh, it was under the dominion of Shaddai. The city was walled. <clears throat> That's what was typical in those days. And there were only five gates that you could enter the city. No one came in or out except for these gates. And these gates were eye gate, ear gate, mouth gate, feel gate, and nose gate. The great enemy of the city was a certain Diabolos which is the Greek word for devil. The story unfolds by describing how Diabolus came and he overtook the city. Now, in order to overtake the, take the city, what he did was he and his companions approached Eargate and began upon Eargate with an assault and a plea to follow him rather than following Shaddai. Eventually they came in, but the only way to conquer the city once, once they got in was to kill Captain Resistance and Lord Innocence. They had to do that before they could even get in the ear gates. And then upon entering the city, he had to, he had to suppress and remove Mr. Understanding from being mayor. He replaced him with Mr. Lustings. Mr. Conscience was also put out of office, who Diabolus and all the city found particularly obnoxious as he spoke against all the evil of their evil plans. And eventually, Mr. Understanding and Mr. Conscience were jailed in order to take over the city of Mansoul. Well, when the news of the city's downfall reached Shaddai, he wasn't surprised at all what took place. He knew full well that it would take place. But he, he went and he set, sent people to the city of Mansoul to rescue it. He sent Boanerges and conviction and judgment and execution who came upon the city with great energy. But they didn't conquer the city. And then he, he set, um, Shaddai sent three of his volunteers to fight against the city. Tradition, human wisdom, and man's invention. But they all were taken prison in Mansoul. It was finally then when Shaddai sent his son Emmanuel to dethrone Diabolus that the city was finally conquered. And when Diabolus heard about this, he sent proposals to make peace with Emmanuel. He says, I will be your secretary. And uh, Emmanuel says, I'll have none of that. Eventually, Emmanuel came in to take the city of Mansoul, become ruler. He made Mr. Experience an officer in the city. 
under the direction of the new secretary, Mr. Conscience. But Mansell wasn't entirely at peace after that. He had to face a counter-revolution in the city. Covetousness and anger wanted to revolt against Emmanuel. He had to face new onslaughts at the ear gates by the army of doubters that approached the town. By night, some made an attack on Fieldgate when it happened to be at its very weakest. At one point, an army of bloodmen or persecutors attacked the town. But the Mansolians, headed by faith and patience, overcame them. Eventually, the prince of doubters was convicted, tried, and put to death. The book ends with Emmanuel making an impassioned speech. Listen to what Emmanuel says to all of Mansoul's. He says, You must believe, O my Mansoul, when I am away from you, that yet I love you and bear you upon my heart forever. Remember, therefore, O my Mansoul, that you are loved of me as I have therefore taught you to watch, to fight, to pray, and to make war against my foes. So now I command you to believe that my love is constant to you. Oh, my man soul, how I have set my heart, my love upon you. So watch. Behold, I lay no other burden upon you than what you have already hold fast till I come. Well, that's the holy war. Obviously, it's an allegory of what takes place in the soul of man. The devil primarily attacks our ears by the things that he says to us, the things that we take into our understanding. And for the devil to reign in our lives, our conscience and understanding need to be suppressed. And try as they might, conviction and tradition and judgment will have no effects upon dethroning the devil in our lives. It's only when we embrace the rule of Emmanuel, God with us, that our lives will truly be free. And even then, attacks will come upon us. Attacks from without and attacks from within. Ear gate will continue to be attacked by doubters. Eye gate will continue to be attacked by coveters. And our field gate will continue to be attacked by lusts. But we need to follow the words of our Lord Jesus. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. You know, the Christian life is a war. There's a battle that goes on every day for our souls. In our text this morning, we see this battle. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll look this morning at two verses, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Let me read them for you. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, in the spirit of my introduction this morning, I've entitled my message, Holy War. In these two verses, we're going to see two fronts upon which we need to fight this holy war. The first comes in verse 11. I'm calling it the fight against fleshly lusts. The fight against fleshly lusts. I, I trust that you can see in this verse the war terminology. It comes right there at the end of verse 11 where it says that fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. This point Peter uses military language to describe his point. The language of a soldier who takes up his full armor. The language pictures a, a soldier having girded his loins and putting on his breastplate. 
with a shield in his hand and a, and a helmet on his head and a sword in his other hand. He's ready to fight the Christian life. Such language of waging war isn't unique to Peter. Paul said in Ephesians 6 to take up the full armor of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And the idea is the same in all of these verses. You live your Christian life, live it like a soldier lives his life. And how does a soldier live his life? He's alert. The soldier's on guard. He's ready. He is armed. And the reason why is because there's an enemy out there who's taking up arms and attacking you where you are vulnerable. Maybe you are vulnerable this this morning in your ear gate. You listen to things perhaps that you ought not to listen to. Maybe you listen to those who stir your flesh. Realize it's a war. And it might be music on your iPod. And it might be the radio station you listen to in your car. Or it might be the false teachers that you listen to and watch on television. You need to realize you're under attack and as a soldier you need to fight back. Or for you, it might be the eye gate where you're particularly vulnerable. Maybe you look upon those things that you ought not to look upon. Maybe you look upon those things that stir your flesh. Realize, listen, it's a war. And it could be the magazines you read. It could be the posters you see at your workplace. It could be the catalogs you see that that come and advertise all the Christmas sales. It could be the cute girl at the checkout counter. You need to realize you're under attack. You need to be ready to fight back like a soldier. For you, maybe it's Fieldgate where you're vulnerable. You love certain sensual pleasures that have a way of dominating your life. It could be food, leads to gluttony. It could be sexual pleasures, which lead to sin in various ways. It could be video games, which cause you to fritter away the precious time that God has given you. It could be your laziness. Maybe you love to sleep, which leads to your sluggardliness. Maybe you fail to work hard. You need to realize you're under attack. You need to be ready to fight back like a good soldier. The Christian life isn't a day at the beach. No, the Christian life is a tour of duty in Iraq. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what Peter is saying here. And notice how the enemy is brought up in this text. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Fundamentally, your war problem isn't the things around you. Fundamentally, your war problem has to do with your own flesh. Now, certainly there are things around us that stir our flesh. But Peter says it's your flesh and your fleshly lust that wage war against your soul. You know, when Diabolos took over man's soul, he didn't just walk right on in. It had to be an inside job. Those patrolling ear gate had to open up to let him in to address the whole city. And once they were silenced, Diabolos was able to exert his full role. So also with your flesh. For sin to get the best of you, it needs to be an inside job. And indeed, that's what happens. Your own evil cravings stir up from within inside yourself. They take up arms and they start attacking you from the inside out. 
Peter wants for all of us to know our enemy because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If you know your enemy, you can prepare to fight your battles. And I'm telling you today where your enemy is. Your enemy is your own flesh. And that's what makes the war on terror so difficult, right? We don't know where our enemy is. Our enemy might be coming. Our enemy might be a citizen of the United States. We don't know. But the war for our souls, the enemy's clear. It's our own fleshly lust that wage war against the soul. As Pogo the Possum said, we have met the enemy and he is us. How true it is. And Peter wasn't the only one who talked this way. Jesus said the same thing. Peter learned from Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus said it's what proceeds out of the man that defiles him. It's not the outer things that a man eats and then eliminates that defiles him. It's not a matter of washing your hands. It's what comes from out from within. And Jesus said from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed out from within and defile the man. Jesus gave a whole variety of sins there, and yet all those sins originate in our own sinful lusts. James said it this way, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, to be sure, temptation comes from the outside. But temptation can only germinate when the seed of the lusts is open to having it germinate there. We're carried away and enticed by our own lusts. And it can get ugly. James says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your lusts that wage war in your members? James talks about your own pleasures that wage war in your members. Your own sinful pleasures pick up machine guns and fight for the right to enjoy their lusts. In the next verse, James describes, James chapter 4, verse 2, how it works. He says, you lust and you do not have. You are envious and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. See, there's a, a desire in your in you, your members. You want something, and when you can't have it, you protest. And and when the protest doesn't happen, you pick up a fight because your inner desires want something really bad, and that's the source of all quarrels and conflicts among you. And so, I just ask you to put this to the test. See if this is true or not. When you have an argument, sometime, perhaps with your wife, perhaps children, with your parents, perhaps at work, at school. in the argument or after the argument or at some point, think to yourself, okay, why am I arguing with this person? Why are we going at it this way? And then ask yourself, could it be that I have a lust that I'm not getting and I want it really bad and I'm ready to, to fight and quarrel in order to get it? You'll find every time that's the cause your own fleshly lust causes wraths and dissensions and arguments and fighting. It's true of sibling rivalry. It's true of marriage conflicts. And I just say the fact that you would do this and argue and fight and quarrel with those you love show you how strong the flesh really is. You're not knocking down or you're not fighting against opponents coming after you. There's a she-bear within. It's been robbed of his, her cubs she's going after that's how lust take place well at this point you might say well Steve what are these earthly these 
fleshly lust that Peter's talking about. Well, I think Paul helps us at this point. Galatians chapter 5. In fact, why don't you turn over there. Galatians 5. This is important enough for us to turn back there. Galatians 5, a few books back. Paul points out the deeds of the flesh, which I believe are the lusts of the flesh. Same thing. He says they are evident. He says in Galatians 5, verse 19, they are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. I mean, these are the deeds of the flesh that all originate from the lusts of the flesh. Let me just go through this list. Immorality, sexual misconduct, impurity, sinful, dirty behavior, sensuality, sinful, physical pleasures, idolatry, finding satisfaction in anything else other than God, sorcery, involvement in the occult, enmities, hatred toward others, strife, real conflicts with others, jealousy, a desire to have what others, a desire to want what others have. Outbursts of anger, a lack of self-control that finds itself in expressions of anger. Disputes, arguments of any kind, dissensions, large disagreements, factions, a split in unity. Envying, a wishing that you had what they have. Drunkenness, a loss of control. Carousing, search for mischief. And Paul concludes this list by saying in verse 21, and things like these. This isn't even exhaustive. Like these are the only things. He's just talking about just things that come out of our flesh that we do. And then look at how how strongly Paul warns these people and the severity to which he tells them to avoid these things. He says, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. He preached it to them in the past. He's preaching it to them now. And then he says this, those who practice such things right, make it a common Activity of their life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Think about that. You practice those things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Your eternal destiny is at stake in these things. In some sense, they're disqualifying sins. To be involved in these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You won't enjoy the delights of the kingdom of God if you delight in the lusts and deeds of the flesh. And in fact, that's exactly what I believe Peter's talking about here in uh, 1 Peter. Turn back there to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> I think here when he mentions the soul, he's saying that these things are, are warring against the soul. Against your very most precious, eternal substance that you have. Your soul is your most valuable possession. Jesus asked the question hypothetically one time. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And the answer is, he gains him nothing. You get of all the wealth in the world, all the pleasures of the world, 
and you lose your soul, it's nothing. But what will a man give in exchange for a soul? There's nothing. If you stand before Christ someday and you have the whole world, say, Christ, I give you the world for my soul. He'll say it's not enough because your soul is more valuable than all the riches of the world. And I just say this. If the soul is your most valuable possession, if it comes under attack, it calls for the, some serious action. I mean, think about this. Wherever the President of the United States travels, Secret Service is all around him, scoping out the place where he's going to go, and he's there protecting him and, guy, and just guarding him against dangers. Why? Because the President's valuable. Airports. If you go to an airport... You, you got to go through some security screenings in order to get there. Take off your shoes, you know, walk through the, through the whatever, x-ray machines in order to get on an airplane. Why? Because we value our safety. And as um, 9-11 taught us, those are flying missiles that can be used to destroy. Around Fort Knox, the United States keeps its, much of its gold stack. You think there's security around that? <laughs> tell you there's security. Why? Why is there so much security around Fort Knox? We deem it valuable. Uh, I read this week that Fort Knox has 5,000 tons of gold in it. 5,000 tons of gold. How much is gold going for now? 800 bucks an ounce. So you autistic math whizzes there, you might want to come up with it, right? Hundred trillion dollars is at Fort Knox. That's a hundred trillion reasons to beef up security there. In, in case you're thinking about, hmm, <clears throat> bank robbery, Fort Knox, that'd be a good place to go. Well, think again, Charlie. The vault at Fort Knox is right on the compound of the Army base Fort Knox itself, which means that the Army banks there, really tanks, attack helicopters, a bunch of artillery, Furthermore, 30,000 men are there at Fort Knox ready to pounce upon you should you decide to go for bank robbery. This whole complex is ringed by several fences, all of which is guarded by police. There are alarms, video cameras, armed guards all around. The vault itself is underground. Walls this vault are made of thick granite walls. The door itself is blast-proof. Well, I think. I mean, the door itself only weighs 25 tons. 50,000-pound door. In order to open it, you got to have different people doing different locks at the same time. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And finally, get in. once you get in the vault, there's still lower-level cells where all this gold is kept to protect it. Now imagine this country had some inside intelligence that knew for sure that people were planning an attack on Fort Knox. As they were surveying with uh, satellite images and with news and underground people, they found that a mass of people were assembling in a town about 30 miles away, ready to march in to overtake Fort Knox. What do you think our nation would do? I don't care what president is in there. Every president of the United States is going to say, we've got to do something about this. Every general is going to do something about this. And I would guess even that there would be an offensive attack that would seek to break up the buildup of the weapons of this place. Wouldn't we? Why? Because Fort Knox is so valuable. 
And church family, listen, know that a similar attack is taking place in your life. Fleshly lusts are waging war upon your soul. Are you going to defend yourself against these attacks? Are you going to go on the offensive in these attacks upon your soul? If we as a nation would fortify heavily for perishable things like silver or gold, will you fortify your own defenses when your imperishable soul is at stake? I think you'll say, well, of course I will. You say, Steve, I don't know how. Well, let me tell you how. Peter tells us how. We ought to, chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts. This word means we need to keep away from them. Avoid them. The best way to wage war of fleshly lusts is to walk away. When dealing with people who want to argue with you, the Proverbs tell us the best action is to walk away. Proverbs 17, verse 14, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. You start to quarrel with somebody, just abandon the quarrel. Otherwise, more and more water is just going to gush out. Proverbs 20, verse 3, Keeping away from strife is honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. It's the fool who keeps going and going. The honorable man just walks away doesn't have to have the last word. A gentle answer turns away wrath. When it comes to people who want to bicker with you, the best choice at that moment is to walk away. And so also when temptations come upon your souls, the best action is to abandon them, walk away. When that was the example of Jesus, think about when he was tempted by the devil on several occasions. He didn't listen to what the devil said. And, you know, he said, oh, you're hungry? Make this stone into some bread. Jesus didn't say, hmm, you know what, I, I, think, I think I am hungry. I could change that stone into bread. Maybe I should, should I do that or not? I mean, he didn't go into that path. What he simply said is that man shall not live by bread alone. And every attack that Satan brought upon him, he just instantly quoted scripture and eventually he said, be gone, Satan. So that a model for us. It's what Peter tells us. It's how we need to battle our flesh less when the temptation comes. Get away. When your eyes see something you ought not to see, close your eyes or turn your head away. When your ears hear something you know is wrong, stop listening. Turn the radio. Rebuke the person telling you those things. When your flesh is seeking to engage in sinful, sensual behavior, run away. Don't draw near to it. You know, it's sad. Too often people think about, well, how close can I come and not sin? the wrong question to ask. The question to ask would be, how can I get as far away as possible? That's what Peter means here. Abstain. Apeko. Just get away. In Peter's counsel is Paul's counsel. When writing the Thessalonians, he said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. You keep away from it. You don't dabble with it. You don't play with it. You don't inquire into it. You don't see how close you can come. Rather, you see how far away you can stay. Your flesh seeks to wage war. Listen, the one who thinks he can handle little temptation is a fool. I can do just a little bit. You're a fool because you've just let Diabolos into the city of Mansoul where then he can reign and rule. If you play with temptation, you'll be burned. Can a man take fire in his bosom 
and his clothes not be burned? Well, of course not. So don't take fire in your bosom. Don't play with matches in a fireworks factory, right? That's what you're doing when you're entertaining thoughts, when you're bringing it in, when you're looking at it a second time, when you're listening a little bit more. That's what's taking place. Church family, I just say, abstain from flesh lust. Don't play with fire. And then finally on this point, we see what Peter says gives us some motivation behind that. He says, as aliens and strangers is why you ought to act in this way. Because you're not of this world. You're an alien and a stranger in this land. Fundamentally, this earth isn't our home. We're just here for a short while. As the, the spiritual hymn says, we're just a passing through. This isn't where our permanent home is. So don't be engaged in these temporal lusts. The customs of the world aren't ours. Our love and affection ought to be in another place. As the Apostle John said, do not love the world nor the things in the world. For all that's in the world, so if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world's passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you're not of the world. You have found your hope and glory and trust in Christ. You've got a, a better hope, a, a, an eternal inheritance that's waiting for you. That's where you want to be. That's where you are. Your citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 3, is in heaven. I mean, that's where you ought to live, right? Seek the things above, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. That's where you ought to go. The things there of the earth are not to capture our attention. Why? Because we're aliens and strangers. Paul, Peter's already mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The, the idea isn't that they were foreigners moving in there. The fact is that they were there and transformed by the power of the gospel in their lives and that they were no longer citizens in the hometown where they grew up. They were citizens of a different country. They have a living hope of things to come. They no longer have their affections upon the earth. They're from above. They're from their heavenly Father, Peter says, listen, reflect upon who you are, loved ones. Reflect upon who you are and live like you belong to another kingdom. May that give you reason to fight against fleshly lusts. Well, my second point this morning is really the flip side of my first point. My second point is this, fight for excellent behavior. Verse 11 tends more towards the inner struggle, the, the, the struggle that you have with yourself, with your flesh. Verse 12 leans more towards being an outer struggle, which other people see. Verse 11 describes what to flee from. Verse 12 describes what to follow after. Verse 11 describes our struggle with the self. Verse 12 deals with our witness to the world. And Peter says this in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Think about Peter's comments here. You can see how difficult it is, and that's why I've kept up this war terminology. Fight for excellent behavior. Fight for it. Peter's urging his readers to have a certain kind of behavior, an excellent behavior. And at first glance, we might 
simply think that Peter's calling us to a life of good deeds which the public sees. I mean, I just listed down here a list of about 25 different good deeds the public sees, which are good things to do. Visiting nursing homes. Singing for the Salvation Army. Shoveling the driveway for your elderly neighbor. For pay is okay. You can do that too, Mark Landman. Serving Thanksgiving meals to homeless people. Being responsible for a a two-mile stretch of highway for cleaning it up. Doing your social service in that way. Visiting criminals in a local jail. Giving blood to a blood bank. Right there, see, that's a good thing to do. Helping storm victims. Doing volunteer work at a local hospital. Raising money for American Cancer Society for cancer research. Donating food to a food pantry. Being a big brother, a big sister to underprivileged children. Adopting a child. Saving a child from a very difficult circumstance otherwise. Watching your neighbor's home when they're gone. Donating a kidney to a relative. If you match everything that needs to be matched for a kidney transplant. Helping out a local rescue mission. Building a home for the poor through Habitat of Humanity. Giving your money to some charitable institution. Christian, non-Christian. A church, missionary, some social service agency. Being a foster parent. What a wonderful thing to take these kids who are beaten and abused and take them into a solace of a home for a few months. Bringing meals to shut-ins through Meals and Wheels programs. Buying food for a homeless person. Working as a search and rescue volunteer. Right, Bairds? It's a good thing to do. Raising awareness, some social issue. Email campaigns, public campaigns, whatever. Working hard for those kind of things. Being an active member of a, of a social organization like Kiwanis or Rotary Club. Listen, these are good things that are very public and people might observe them. We see in verse 12, people are observing your good deeds. And I say we ought to be involved in these things as we have opportunity. As Paul said in Galatians 6, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are the household of faith. I think what that says is focus on your good deeds to the church body. But don't neglect everybody. Right? Do good to all people. And the promise there is that in due time you reap if you don't grow weary. We're called to be engaged in good deeds which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. And I'd love to see a church filled with people seeking to make a difference in this world with these types of things. I just want to commend them. Now certainly I would say most of these things I listened are, listed are humanitarian in nature. And I've intentionally done that. But see, you can turn a humanitarian deed into a deed done for Jesus by opening your mouth. Remember last week when we talked here in verse 9 about how we are a different people, a chosen race, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. When you have an opportunity to do many of these things, you know, you're building a home for Habitat Humanity and right alongside your coworker who's doing it just for philanthropic reasons, you can say, well, I'm doing it because I love Christ. Christ says to help the poor and I'm helping the poor in this way because he is so worthy. He has been so kind to me. I want to be kind to others. All you need to do is open your mouth and you can turn any humanitarian good deed into an evangelistic opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. After all, that's what Jesus called us to do. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. The only way they're going to glorify your Father who's in heaven is if you're telling them that that's why you're working for the glory of God. 
Most people, when they do a good deed, are congratulated and applauded by the people of the world. That's a good thing. You're doing a good thing. Go ahead. You need to speak if you're going to make them glorify God for doing your good works before others. So let our light shine, Rock Valley Bible Church. Let it go forth in the community and show what a difference Christ has made for us is that we've become slaves and servants to help and serve other people. But that's not what Peter's talking about. It's kind of like a plug. If you look carefully what Peter's talking about here in verse 12, he's talking about something else. Peter's talking about your good behavior that unbelievers consider to be a bad behavior. And I think everything that I mentioned so far when looked upon by unbelievers is basically seen as good behavior. Like, for instance, suppose you get involved in the Big Brothers, Big Sisters program. You give four hours a month to an inner city boy who doesn't have a father in his life. You're giving him a role model for what a father is. It's a good thing you're doing, especially if you're telling this little boy about Jesus in the process. It's a wonderful thing. And now suppose you have a conversation with someone at work, your neighbor, about what you do. You say, well, I volunteer four hours a month. I have this guy over once a month. I know I take him to a ball game or I play catch with him or... Know, we go watch a movie together. Just do something. You know, just trying to show them what a normal home is like. Well, what's your coworker, non-believer, going to say? Ah, it's good. It's a good thing. And, and as much as even you seek to give glory to God, I, well, I'm doing this just because God has been gracious to me. I want to be gracious to this boy who's really down and out and needs help. I think people will see that still as a good thing to do. You think so? So, but Peter is saying something different. Peter's saying, maintain this excellent behavior so that as people look at your good behavior, they think it's not good behavior. They think it's evil behavior because they're going to slander you as evildoers. They're going to speak falsely that you are an evildoer, but they're speaking such a way to bring reproach upon this good that you're doing, which they're not thinking is good. And then if you keep going, later... It will be revealed to them. They will observe them and eventually they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. So the true goodness of your good deeds will come out. But initially they, they look at your good deed as an evil deed. Now let me ask you, what sort of behavior is Peter talking about here? Can you think of any good thing you've done that's been seen and viewed as evil by other people? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Something good that you do, that God would amen what you're doing, and people say, that's an evil thing. Here's some things that brought to my mind. All right? I'm just trying to think, what, what kind of deeds fit into this behavior? And I was thinking about this. I think um, volunteering your time at the Pregnancy Care Center might cause some strong pro-choice people to oppose you. They think a woman ought to have a right to choose. And why are you doing this? There's a good deed you're doing that maybe some look at as evil. Uh, I was thinking about Doug Lohner. He went to China. Got back a couple months ago. Teach English to Chinese people. And in the process, then to minister the gospel to those people. And you've told me that the Chinese government has been real happy about that. Right? There is a good deed viewed upon by a government as an evil deal. 
That's what Peter's talking about here. I think about the teens. We recently saw a documentary about other teenagers bringing Bibles into Vietnam. Is that a good thing, to bring Bibles to people who don't have Bibles? Absolutely. And yet, if they were caught, those Bibles would have been confiscated. Maybe some believers on the other side may have been in some trouble. There's a good deed that's being done that a hostile government is viewed as an evil thing. Or I think maybe about this. In a Hindu land... You might be seen as an evildoer if you reach out to those of a low caste and actually touch them because they're dirty and unclean and paying for the punishment of a former life that they lived wickedly. They might look at that good deed that you're doing to help somebody in a hospital or help care for somebody or, or give somebody love who doesn't have love, who's hated, cast off, and rejected. They might look at that as an evil deed when it is genuinely a true good deed. Some of the work that's been done in Vietnam, in um, Nepal that we've helped support. Uh, Bob Clinton has helped the widows who've been cast off. People see that as, no, they're cast off. They need to deserve to live the rest of their life in the gutter. Bob's doing a good thing. There's some people who would call it evil. I, I think about maybe another would be in our land. You know, Maybe there's some who will slander you for spanking your children. They may consider you a child abuser. You spank their, your child. And, and indeed, some forms of spanking are child abuse. But that's an example, I think, of some overreacting probably and saying that good thing that you're doing, showing love to your child, because it's the one who hates his son who will spare the rod. If you love your son, you'll discipline him diligently. But that's a good deed that some might be seen evil as others. But I, see, I, didn't, I didn't think of any more. So it's like not a lot of things that we do are good that's looked upon by others as evil. Because I think in many ways in our day and age and culture, it's a bit difficult to come up with good deeds that are viewed by others as evil. I think the influence of Christianity, um, though it's waning, has had some good effect upon us where we live. But I think even Peter faced that. Look over in chapter 3, verse 13. Peter said, it doesn't make sense. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good. The answer is nobody's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good. Even in Peter's time, that was the case. Nevertheless, there were some people who were doing good and experiencing this very thing. It's really almost unimaginable, but look at what Peter says in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You're doing righteous behavior and you're suffering for it. How are you suffering? I think the next phrase gives an indication of that. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. You're blessed you're not intimidated. You're blessed. Don't be troubled with that. So here they're doing righteous things and suffering for it. People by intimidation talking against you. In chapter 4, verse 4, Peter talks about how people will malign you for not engaging in their sinful activities. I think there's some of that that takes place today. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Peter says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. Right? Make sure that you're not a, a thief and suffer for it. Make sure that you're not doing some evil thing and suffering for it. But, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. 
you walk rightly, you proclaim the name of Christ, you profess your trust in Christ, and you suffer for that's where you need to suffer. In other words, if you're a Christian doing Christian things, you may well suffer. Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation. I mean, you will, as a Christian, face tribulation and difficulty. So, the people of 1 Peter were facing some things. you got to say, well, what, what were they facing? Well, if you read church history, in fact, if you read the book of Acts, you can see this budding persecution coming, encountering Christians in the world. First of all, the early Christians were persecuted for preaching Christ, right? We saw that last week, Acts chapter 4. Chapter 3 and chapter 4, chapter 5, about this blind man or this lame man was healed. He went about leaping and happing and praising God. They said, what have you done? He said, I preach Christ is the power. He said, don't preach anymore. We're going we're gonna, to um, beat you. We're going to punish you. They're thrown in jail, got out again. And they were lashed. They're beaten for preaching Christ. Preaching Christ is a good thing. At that time, the Jews considered it to be evil. And if you just go through the book of Acts, you'd be amazed how much the Jews are hounding Paul. They follow him from city to city to city because they're so convinced of what he's doing is a bad thing. Stirring up mobs, stirring up the ruckus, going down and getting the, the, the river people or you know the people by the, the uh, I forget the, the the poorest, the worst, the you know the meanest of the society to come up and just stir this crowd against these people to get them out. It's happening. But see, years went on. It's interesting in church history. Peter was almost writing prophetically. I don't think this was totally happening when he was writing this, but it certainly did happen later. Several other things Christians did were counted by others as evil. And, and this might be, seem a bit bizarre to you, but did you know that early Christians were considered to be atheists? They were atheists, awe God, against God in the sense they refused to worship the Greek pantheon of gods. They said, those aren't gods. And so in denying the Greek pantheon, they were declared to be Ah, God, atheists against God. And they're also atheists in the sense they refuse to bow down to Caesar, who was Lord. And so think about this. By worshiping Christ, the early Roman government saw these people as evildoers. Is worshiping Christ a good thing? Absolutely. They're seen as evildoers. Well, here's another thing that might seem bizarre to you. The early Christians were considered to be cannibals by the Romans. They thought that they were eating other people in these secretive parties that they were having. And do you know why? Did any kids, do you know why the Christians would be accused of being cannibals? Twelve and under. Anybody know why? SRY. Okay, but why would they be cannibals? You know who cannibals are? Cannibals are people who eat people. Why would they be that? Because of the Lord's Supper, we eat his body, we drink his blood. And that got out. They said, oh, they're cannibals, right? Being slandered as evildoers, though it was totally false. That took place in the New Testament, in the later times, early church history. And so think about this. As Christians carried out their normal Christian lives, we evangelizing, gathering for worship, celebrating the Lord's Supper, being slandered for it as evildoers. And yet, in many ways, we live in a land immune to some of these pressures, don't we? Maybe not. Yvonne told me this past Friday she was in Sam's Club. And um, she was looking at some children's books they had on display. And uh, there were two women looking at some children's books. 
beside her and one of the women said, oh, here's a book of Bible stories. That would be perfect for so-and-so. And the other woman who was with her said, yeah, that'd be really nice. And Yvonne told me that at that point she was really encouraged. I mean, I think of a couple of things. First of all, Sam's Club is selling Christian books, Christian stories. That's good. Uh, second of all, that these people had some interest in Christian books or someone had a reputation for wanting you know, Christian things that would be really good for them. And so her heart was really encouraged. And then her encouragement was shattered when the first woman said this. She said, nah, they already have enough of that crap anyway vulgar intensity just to see the intensity with which they hate Christianity and then Avon's heart was dispirited and we don't know the circumstance behind these things we don't know the Christian testimony we don't know exactly what but we do know that here Christians people doing good things being slanders evildoers call this awful language slandered behind the back. And we don't know how much of that takes place. But I think it does. I remember when I was working in the computer world, I was carrying on my life, working hard, seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking of Christ when appropriate. At one point, totally behind my back, my fellow office mates were maligning my Christian behavior. I didn't know anything about it. But when my non-Christian boss heard what they were saying, it was so bad that my non-Christian boss said, guys, there's no more talk of this at all in the office anymore. You can't do that anymore. And I only found out about this later through my boss who told me. He said, well, how's it going in the office when you're over there in the pit? How's it going? And then he told me about how he had shut my coworkers down. I appreciated that and told him. But we never know the slander that's going on behind her back. Who knows what others are thinking about your activities at Rock Valley Bible Church? But I just say, when you're faithful, Lord, you will face the hostility of others. I remember a time when a friend of mine was reaching out to some uh, elder, an elderly couple, a neighbor who was an older, older family, and they invited him for dinner. And throughout the course of dinner, they engaged in a nice conversation, and then they transitioned after dinner some dessert. And I think they were playing cards. And then at one point, the husband of the house shared the gospel with this older couple. And upon doing so, the older gentleman said something like this. And these words aren't, aren't right at all. But he says, now why would you have to go and ruin a perfectly enjoyable evening and friendship by saying these things? And from then on, there was a rift in the friendship. They're doing a good thing by sharing the gospel with them. And yet there's a enmity then that resulted. Or we do a good thing by confronting people gently in love, seeking to restore them. And they take up offense. There can be rifts there. Slander you as an evildoer. Who is he? Goody two-shoes. He would do this. Right? And there may be other things that we do if we carry out our love for the Savior that cause others to cause them, call them evil deeds. But the good news is this. We have a hope in doing good deeds to a lost and dying world. And the hope comes here in verse 12. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that, here's the purpose, right? Walk rightly among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which you're slandered, even if you're slandered as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, right, these very things they're watching that they're calling evil, as they observe them, as they watch them, so these are visible deeds that the world, the unsaved world can see, that they're slandering for you, as they see what you're doing, and as they observe these things, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. 
so God can get glory for the good things you do, even if you're slandered by it. And commentators are totally divided all over the board on this. What is this day of visitation? Well, some say it's either the day of conversion, in which people willingly give glory to God, or it's the day of judgment. It may be the day of conversion, when they see a great God you serve so faithfully, and even in the face of persecution, even in the face of slander, you just go about your life and continue on doing good. They say, well, he's got something there. Why would he continue to do those things? Even if I'm slandering him, even if I'm hating him, he is turning his right cheek to me. Right? If I've asked him to go one mile, he's gone two miles with me. If I've asked him for his cloak, he's given me his tunic also. Why is it he's doing it? He must have a, a power deeper that I want. As people see this, they may be attracted to your God and eventually repent and give glory to God in the day of visitation. We know this happened in the early church when, when people were persecuted and people were martyred for their faith because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as Tertullian said. You kill people, they show that Christ is worth dying for. They'll say, oh, maybe there's something to this Christ. And they're converted. You try to suppress the church in that way, it's just going to always flourish. There's no accident the church in China is strong today. So people say, hey, this is salvation. Or people say, no, 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 this is the day of judgment. When people are forced to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord on that day. On that day, people say that they'll be forced to confess that your deeds were righteous and that they were evil in persecuting you in these ways. That might be. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it doesn't matter what it is because at the end of the day, as you continue to be faithful in your good deeds, as you fight for your excellent behavior, God will be glorified through that. Perhaps the conversion of people, perhaps through the, the judgment of people. And you may face ridicule now, but you'll be vindicated later. Isn't that the message of First Peter, right? Suffer now and glory later. And we will see that in weeks to come. After the new year, we're going to pick up chapter 2, verse 13, and see more suffering now and glory later, doing what's right and being slandered by it. And I just say, church family, fight the two fronts of the war for your soul. Fight against your fleshly lusts. And fight for good, excellent Lord, I pray you'd simply help in these things. Take deep into our hearts that we would be those who, who indeed fight the holy war for our souls. Diabolus is out there and he wants to enter through one of our gates into the heart of our souls to suppress our conscience and our understanding. So he might reign and rule. I pray you'd keep us from that because we have embraced Emmanuel and he's the one that lives and rules and reigns in our hearts. He's the one that gives us power to do that. So I pray we'd rely upon him as the, the war and the fightings come. That in all ways Christ should be glorified. And I know that we can pray that in confidence. Because as they see your good deeds, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And in that we rejoice. We pray in Christ's name.